0: Hello, Impeachment Explained listeners. Um, Sorry the podcast is over. Wish impeachment itself had been a somewhat less depressing dive into the underbelly of the American political system. But something I said here quite often was that this was a show about impeachment that was in truth a show about polarization because impeachment became a lens on political polarization and the ways in which it is challenging and frustrating and reshaping the way our political system works. Over at my main podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, where I do interviews on all kinds of things, I've been exploring polarization a little bit more directly. Uh, A lot of you will know I just brought out a book uh, called Why We're Polarized, and I've been having folks come on either as part of my live tour or just onto the show itself to talk about the book, about polarization, about what I get wrong, about what we can see and understand in this moment by looking at the past. And one of the episodes I've done that I really loved was with Jill Lepore. And you may know Jill Lepore. She's a Harvard uh, historian. She wrote the amazing one-volume history of the U.S. called These Truths. She writes for The New Yorker, of course. Um, she's a favorite guest of mine from the past. And she came on the show uh, and, and did an interview with me that really pulled no punches. It was very much about this question of, But what if this whole way of knowing things about American politics is wrong? What if social science itself cannot be trusted? I think it's a great exploration of both polarization as a question, which you can see in that podcast and in a lot of other ones uh, I've been doing over there. But also that one was just a fun way of contesting different kinds of knowledge against each other. And I think if you enjoyed this show with its sort of dual focus on political science and ways of understanding political structure, but also history, hearing me and Lepore come at it from these very different angles uh, is, I think, illuminating. Uh, people really like that one, and I think you all will too. So head over to The Ezra Klein Show. Uh, you can find it wherever you are finding this podcast. Um, you can listen to my conversation with Jill Laporte, with ta Coates, Jamal Bowie, so many others. There's a lot of good stuff happening over there right now. And if you are missing your daily dose of this show, I think that one is going to fill that need. So head over to The Ezra Klein Show wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm your host, but I'm a mean host. No, I would actually,
0: I'm, the reason I want to do this with you is I would like to know what you think is wrong about the book. The, my, the audience has heard me talk about how great how great it is and my amazing, like, tell no, me well, what's wrong with it. the
1: audience knows your shtick. I mean, <laughs> they the know audience knows stick, your, yeah. your take on these questions, and it's a really important take, but it's my job here No, to I want to hear your- what's wrong. Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I'm your guest host, Jill Laporte. Uh, Ezra, thanks for being with us today. I am
0: so thrilled to be on this show. I've <laughs> always wanted. Honor. I've always wanted to be a guest Absolutely. on this show.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, we're thrilled to have you. We've been trying so long. I mean, you know, you're a hard scheduling get, a hard is get hard. Yeah. Is the thing. Yeah. So congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Um, which I see everywhere. So you know, it, I think it's the kind of book we could say, well, it was perfectly timed, and yet the timing of this has you could really. Look, anytime since 2004, say, I think mm-hmm. we could pick a date where this would have the book would have appeared in an opportune moment, although the month of the impeachment is, of course, a very particular one. I guess I want to start with the historical framework that you set up in the first, say, third of the book. Just mm-hmm. I'll display my own prejudice as a historian. Yes. I'm interested chiefly in the historical dimensions of this problem, which I know are of are slightly less concern to you. But you spend a lot of time in the beginning of the book trying to establish, as you say, on the very first page that something has changed. And by the time you get to page 70, you say, this is what has changed. Our political identities have become mega identities. So can you just walk us through the nature of that change and how you understand the drivers of that change?
0: Yeah. So the way I think about the interesting question, the book is called Why We're Polarized. And the interesting question is, why was there a period when we weren't? Because look, I'm I'm terrified talking about history with you because you know all of it much better than I do. But we've had very high levels and much more dangerous levels of polarization at other points in our history. We had a civil war in this country. And so in mid-20th century American politics, which a lot of people understand as the golden age of American politics, where a lot of certainly current political pundits baseline how American politics should work. I mean, I remember coming to Washington in the 2005s when I moved to Washington, and it was still... Everything was operating in the mythology of, you remember that time when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill had drinks and they just fixed Social Security? And that was the tail end of this depolarized period. So what was happening in that period? And the answer that I found convincing talking to historians and political scientists was that in this era, we had functionally a four-party system. We had Republicans as we think about them now, liberal Republicans, we don't think about them now, but in particular, we had Democrats, again, as we think about them now, and then Dixiecrats, which were this tremendous blockage in the system and kept the parties from polarizing around ideology and then around demography in the way they naturally would have otherwise the Dixiecrat party was in many cases very conservative. Strom Thurmond was one of the most conservative members of the Senate when he was elected there as a Democrat. And so as long as that was happening, and I think this is something I've not done a good job emphasizing in, in interviews, but that one thing that was really different about that era was the dynamic of how you handled political conflict. Um, In particular, it seems to me that when political conflict happens in a system where a lot of the divisions are inside parties. It gets handled one of two ways. One is it can get handled through compromise. The, the different sides want to figure out something together. They want to find a way to move forward. And so they find a way that they can all agree on. It's a positive sum negotiation The other possibility often is it gets handled through suppression, which for much of the early 20th century is how we handled a lot of issues of race. Uh, Dixiecrats were able using control of committees and the filibuster to block anti-lynching laws and Civil Rights Act laws and voting rights laws. But so the Civil Rights Act begins, it does not all of a sudden create, but it begins a rupture of this alliance. And as the parties then sort by ideology, it permits what wasn't permitted before, which was that this racial dimension of politics was stopping the parties from going off in very divergent directions. Once that blockage is taken away and they do diverge, that divergence interacts with our political system, which needs high levels of bipartisan compromise to function well in ways that create the situation we see around us now.
1: So when you refer to this era, am I right in supposing that you're referring to, say, in 1932 to 1968?
0: Yeah, I would even put it probably a little bit past 68. I still think you were seeing the end of that system in the 70s. I mean, even now when Joe Biden talks about getting to the Senate in the night, I believe he was elected, if I'm not wrong, in 1972 or 1974, somewhere right around there. When Joe Biden talks about being there and working with segregationist senators. I mean, there were still many of them in the Democratic Party, um, including some very, very rigid racist senators like Eastland. And so even though the Civil Rights Act had happened and you'd begun seeing Republicans become competitive at the presidential level in the American South, and some of these players had begun moving over, Strom Thurmond ran as a Dixiecrat at one point, um, eventually would become a Republican, it took time for that cohort to change. This interacts, I think, in an interesting way with the parts of the book that focus on identity, because... It shows how hard it is to actually shed an identity even after there is a very fundamental rupture around policy itself, the most important policy priority for many of these Southern Democrats they still have been Democrats all their lives. Their identity was still Democrat. And it's really not until the 90s, the Republican Revolution, and what comes after that, that you see the South become solidly Republican in an identity way, as opposed to just becoming more of a swing part of the country.
1: So I'm intrigued by what you say about essentially a de facto four-party system because of conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans in this era, the middle decades of the 20th century. But I guess I want to I want to challenge you there and suggest that Another way to account for the change that you see is, I'm your host, but I'm a mean host. No, I would actually.
0: I'm, the reason I want to do this with you is I would like to know what you think is wrong about the book. The, my, the audience has heard me talk about how great how great it is and my amazing and like tell no, me what's well, wrong with it. The
1: audience knows your shtick. I <laughs> they mean, they know my shtick, Yeah, your take on these questions and it's a really important take. But it's my job here. No, to I want to hear what's wrong. You. So one of the things that I often think when people ask about polarization, and they're talking about the two party system or in your case, trying to divide it again into essentially a de facto four-party system, is that what they're failing to consider is that uh, people who don't have the right to vote or are unable to exercise the right to vote are political people who have party positions. That is to say, if you were to think broadly about American history, from the ratification of the Constitution and the first Congress, say, in 1790 to 1965, you could very easily, I think, argue that there is— Assuming from we're only talking about the two-party system, mm-hmm. we can even start in, in 1828 so we can talk about Democrats and Republicans. But there is a there is actually a shadow third party in the United States, which are people who are held in slave in a state of slavery, and then who subsequently they and their descendants are unable to exercise the right to vote in the Jim Crow South. Who I guess I challenge anyone to describe those people as something other than a political party in the sense that they have a shared political agenda and body of political interests, they are allies with one another, their political objective is emancipation or enfranchisement after emancipation, and that that we have always had essentially a, a three-party system until 65 with the Voting Rights Act, when, when those people are finally fully enfranchised, mm-hmm. uh, putting a big asterisk next to our current voter suppression um, schemes. And that what we see post-65 or post-68 or post-72 is just the messiness of an actually enfranchised third political party.
0: Well, that's an interesting way of putting that. I mean, I agree on a big level with what you're saying. I think something that this is getting at, which is, in my view, the toughest part of all this literature and something that I'm trying to work through in the book. But every political scientist, what they tell me about this, the part they want to either agree with or really debate with is a question between is the relationship between what we might call like elite level party polarization and where the mass public is. And I think what you're keying on there and correctly so is that a lot of this book is about what is happening in polarization in elite institutions. As you say that there is this other coalition happening in the country during this period, but they're not enfranchised in Congress. And so they're not you can't look at how they voted on this or that bill. And one of the stories I try to tell as time goes on is how differences at that elite level polarization then sort the choices the mass public is able to make, which ends up polarizing the mass public more. So I'm trying to build more connective tissue between some of the theories of elite polarization and some of the theories of mass polarization. But what you say there is well taken. Something that was really striking to me, and I didn't end up keeping much of it in the book, but I just found it interesting, was that in that period, in that mid-century period... We were not super sharply sorted by race in the parties themselves. There were a lot of African-American Republicans or also African-American Democrats. Andrew Sullivan just did a review of the book where he said that he described it as saying that there was a Democratic coalition mid-century that was good at representing both the um, interests of white Americans and, and black Americans. And I don't really think that was true, actually. That. What you had was in different places. Parties had acted very differently. In some ways, I think one of the other ways to put it is that we might not have had something that should be understood as a party system at all, right? Maybe there weren't four parties. Maybe there were eight. Maybe there were forty. I mean, we were very regional. What it meant to be a Democrat in Virginia and a Democrat in Missouri and a Democrat in um, New York were just really different. And so, all the political scientists at that time, and you've done work on on these apps or and other things too, they come out and they say that the problem is that we have these regional parties that don't translate into national agendas. So I think it is almost certainly true that when I cut this into a four-party system, I think it's a useful way of thinking about Congress and its coalitions, but it's very rough. And almost certainly, if you go fractally on it, you're going to find that could be understood as an Mm eight-party system. I mean, even the Dixiecrats, because they had one party rule the South, I mean, there was this point in Robert Mickey's book, he talks about Dixiecrats, Democrats having 95% of all elected offices in the American South, because they had that much rule. There were reformers in the Dixiecrat Party. There were establishment members of the Dixiecrat Party. There were liberal-ish Dixiecrats, more conservative ones. I mean, there's a pretty wide range of opinions, so any cut you make is is going to be rough. Tell me a bit about if you if you take what you're saying more seriously, that you should understand the disenfranchised as a fifth political party or their own political party, how should that change the analysis?
1: So... I guess, just to respond to what you've said, yeah. i I do think your point about the nationalizing of our political culture is entirely on target, and I think it is a form of our political dysfunction. it's It's very hard to cut against, as your su- list of suggestions hints at. It's a difficult thing to 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 struggle against, but I think that is a a really important vantage for us to have and to notice that the richness of the parties and the range of possible positions within a party had a regionality and a flavor. It's almost like the homogenization of dialect, mm-hmm. right? Like some, there used to be so much richer and wider varieties of regional dialect in the United States than there are now. We're not getting dialect back. I don't think we're getting local flavor and our political parties back anytime soon either. But I, I think that what I'm suggesting is actually a significantly bigger challenge than slice it up differently mm-hmm. or put people into different categories or notice that... African Americans were drawn to the Republican Party before they were recruited into the Democratic Party. It's actually suggesting that the very measures of polarization that your book studies and summarizes so well and so ably, and I think makes it some quite obscure... And some not altogether mm-hmm. obscure political science research, quantitative political science research, available to people to really kind of reckon with and look carefully at. And it's one of the beautiful things about the book, I think, is that welcoming way in which it brings that scholarship uh, to bear on with a sense of urgency for the ordinary reader. The basic... Premise of quantitative political science is that we will measure public opinion and we will count votes, Mm -hmm. including roll call votes in in Congress, and we will come up with a number for everything for congressional activity, for presidential decision making. We will come up with an index of Y and an index of Z. If we're talking about what I'm suggesting, that the 15 percent of the population, the millions of people who were held in bondage or denied the right to vote, and I would include there through 1920 women. The the vast numbers of Americans who are unable to vote are not quantifiable, so that the very lens is clouded. Like, it's actually impossible to see the richness of this political culture that I'm describing with the measures— that political scientists use. And that's the problem. It is not to say that quantitative political science isn't really important, it's strikingly important. There's all kinds of things we can measure. But just to think about, for instance, George Gallup, when he started measuring public opinion using what we would refer to as modern scientific polling in 1935. He specifically never polled African-Americans because his opinion was, well, none of them in the South can vote and there just aren't enough in the North to count. And he was into doing this is kind of similar to some of your media arguments. It's kind of an early nationalizing mm-hmm. of the media story. He was a nationally syndicated columnist. And when he tried asking white Americans, is the only people he polled, questions about civil rights, the Southern newspapers threatened to drop his column. So we just we just don't have actual data about how people thought about civil rights. How white people we certainly don't know. We don't have polling data for black people. We just didn't poll them, which is to say, I just think we have an incredibly clouded view of polarization across American history using the measures that you are necessarily forced to rely on here. So I guess my question is just to challenge you to think about if you did want to reckon with that, if you did want I mean, the place where you sometimes see people reckon with it is with the New Deal. And you talk about this as well, right? The way that everything that Roosevelt is able to do domestically is determined by Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. He wants to get the New Deal through. Therefore, he can't push the South to come up with an anti-lynching bill. He just has to compromise again and again and again on his agenda in order to keep the South and the new deal becomes a kind of jim crow deal for those for those reasons and so if it if it makes to to congressional agenda setting then sometimes it it rises to the level of visibility in the world of this kind of political science but i think it's otherwise requires a different kind of look and I, and so that's what i'm wondering like does your thesis hold if we have always had a raucous incredibly vicious identity based politics we just didn't see it until after 1965
0: i I think it does hold, and, and, and the place where I try to deal with it in the book, and in at least my own thinking, is that I spend a fair amount of time on the book, in the book trying to disentangle the idea of polarization and conflict or polarization and extremism. And something that I am trying in maybe a crude way to push people to, to see is that this period of American political life where we're in theory depolarized, where the political science measures show low levels of conflict is actually one of the most conflict-rich periods in American uh, history. I mean, 1968 on polarization measures is one of the least polarized years in American history. And yet, I mean, 1968, Civil rights movement, women's rights movement. I mean, the the number of deep fractures and frictions you're seeing in American life are really high. I have a section talking about all the political violence then, um, the assassinations, the urban riots, Kent State, et cetera. And so one of the arguments I'm making, which I do think relates to this uh, a bit at least, is that it's my view that a lot of that political conflict because of the way the political system was suppressing conflict – it was coming out in society and not in politics. Actually, uh, an, an argument I've heard people make, and I don't know what to make of it. I find it, com- I find it provocative, but I just don't know if it's true. Is that? The high level of politicized conflict we have now might in some ways be helping keep the pressure off of things that um, people go on Twitter and they scream at each other and they go on cable news. And there's a lot of way to act out your politics or see your fury being represented on television or see your fury being represented in politics such that you don't always have to take to the streets. But my fear about that, my fear about this period compared to that period compared to this period is... On the one hand, a lot of the suppression of political conflict was deeply unjust. I mean, I talk a lot about how depolarization was built on acceptance fundamentally of Jim Crow. That suppression also meant that by the time if Congress decided to put something on the agenda, it did it recognizing it could find a way forward on it. And now it seems to me what we have is conflict amplification. Oftentimes, the political system seems to take relatively low levels of social conflict or moderate levels of social conflict and amplify them way beyond where they would otherwise be. I think here, for instance, of NFL players kneeling on the field during the national anthem, I mean, that was a a divisive issue that people were arguing about, but it got a lot worse when Donald Trump decided despite having no power over the NFL to start tweeting about it and demanding they get fired. And so something that I see, I wonder now, is if we had that level of social division in this political system where the conflict gets amplified because it's between the two parties, whether or not we would even survive it as a country.
1: You know, I was reading um, letters to the chair of a congressional subcommittee from 1966 recently, and they all read to me like crazy person tweets. <laughs> but they were stored away deep in the archives of his congressional papers. And no one, I don't think, aside from the one staff person who read that that letter and sent a formal reply, has ever seen them. Which leads me to ask you whether you suggested that this amplification is a function of our political system, but isn't it rather a function of our? media technology, technologies of communication?
0: I think so. I mean, I I have a chapter on this, but I think that we, polarization has set off a series of feedback loops in different institutions. And that from the way the media is changing to the way elections are changing to the way governance changes, that they are all accelerating polarization in their own ways. But the particular one you bring up here feels right to me. I get annoyed with the idea that post-truth politics or fake news is something that Donald Trump invented in the year 2016. I was thinking about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion being published by Henry Ford in his paper in Michigan. And so we've had fake news for a long time, and it's not like the... Birch Society folks were so nice, not like the communist hunters were so liberal and open and tolerant, but that there was in many cases a way in which the system had these gatekeepers and the gatekeepers operated both for better and for worse. Though for worse is that they ignored the concerns of large um, communities of disenfranchised people. The worse is that they often just didn't allow conflict that needed to happen to happen. The worse is that they were insular and couldn't hear new ideas. But the better is that There were certain kinds of conflict they tried to keep a lid on, and I think that just one thing that's true here and now is that players like that are just less able to keep a lid on conflict, even if they want to. I mean, the media has become, and I tell the story at some length in the book, much more competitive, a choice atmosphere. And you sent me this piece. You actually used some Marcus Pryor research too, which I think is really fascinating, where he shows that as you get cable and you get the internet... What happens is not that we get more politically informed on average, but we stay the same because what happens is that the people who are really into politics get a lot more political information, and the people who don't like politics are much more able to opt out of the political information system. And so now, if you're in the media, and I think that we in the media refuse to let ourselves be analyzed as a business. And sometimes we are dealing with economic incentives, and they do shape the way we think about our role, even if we don't want them to. But we are competing for a more polarized audience than when we had these monopolies, when you're one of three networks or you're the local newspaper monopoly or whatever. And in doing that, in not only competing for people who are very into politics, and people who are very into politics have usually chosen a side, but also distributing through them, because the primary modes of distribution now are, for many of us, not that somebody subscribes to you, but somebody is sharing what you did. And when somebody shares, it's usually because they want to say, like, they had a very strong reaction to it, either positive or negative. Yeah, I think that we are a huge part of the polarization problem. Um, And it's something that, to be honest, as I started Vox and I'm in the media even now, um, it causes me a lot of agony. It is very hard for me to see a way to not be polarizing within a polarized system Because just the issues often are polarizing, I think about this with Donald Trump all the time. I'll get emails about the impeachment podcast I've been doing where people say, you know, I really like the podcast. I find it has a lot of good historical information. But then they'll say, I just I don't think it's fair. I think that you're too hard on Republicans, you're too hard on Donald Trump. And in my view, saying how Donald Trump is acting or how the Republicans are acting honestly, it is polarizing because it is a problem. And the more things get polarizing, the more polarized it is to state them clearly. And then the more polarized things get because they go through the media transmission system and get put up on Facebook and headlines turned up to 11 and all the rest of it. And I like I will be dead honest. I think if you read that chapter correctly, what you see is a problem, as is true for much in the book, that I don't know how to solve. But in that particular respect, it's a problem where I'm very much inside the system. I think I see its incentives pretty clearly. I think there are things we do to combat it. But, you know, there are times when I can't figure out a way to both be honest and not make it worse.
1: Well, I appreciate that, but I do think maybe you're letting yourself a little bit too easily off the hook, even though you're trying to take responsibility. And I mean that with all due respect. But, you know, you talk about Washington as a polarized polarization machine. People could say Vox is a polarization machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the sort of the basic like AB headline, like the headline that's going to pull in more people because it's a more outrageous claim or it expresses more outrage is going to get, you know, Chartbeat is going to tell you it gets more clicks Mm -hmm you guys are selling advertising. It has to work that way. Or Twitter. I mean, only one in five Americans has a Twitter account. 90% of all political tweets are posted by 10% of Twitter users who are people like you. They're younger, whiter, well-educated, better educated, wealthier, and more left than the rest of the population. So, if you're really concerned about polarization, I mean, I think this is the unasked question and I'm yeah, going to ask it. And please. why not leave Twitter? Why not reimagine Vox, re- reimagine a different public forum?
0: So I would say let me cut the Vox and Twitter questions for a part. Yeah, I think they're of course. Different. So I think Twitter-wise, I'm about as publicly critical of Twitter as I can possibly be. And as editor-in-chief of Vox, I mean— every week i would set up i would get up there during our weekly meeting and give a presentation on what you shouldn't be saying on twitter and i think a lot of our people do a good job on twitter but the problem i found and i've i've talked to all these other editors in chief about it is that Everybody seems to feel, and I'm not saying they're correct, that the central political conversation is now there. And so young reporters in particular feel that they have to be there to make their careers. Um, People even like me. Can I just suggest, I
1: think that's an illusion. I don't think the central political conversation is on Twitter.
0: I think the problem... One in
1: five Americans has a Twitter account. Most of them never read political But the central posts.
0: political... I mean, this is, I a think, the problem... A narrow political
1: conversation of white men on the left is on Twitter.
0: I don't... First, I don't think it's just white men. Twitter well, is right. no, unusually no, diverse. It actually is unusually diverse. So I think it's a care... I think we should be careful about that. But um, there's no doubt that Twitter is... What Twitter is, is the conversation political elites are having with each other.
1: So it feels like that's the center because those are people who believe I, they are the center. I wouldn't
0: call it the center. What I would call it is, like, it is... When I say it's the central conversation, I mean something very different than it's like the center of the American public. I mean that one thing that you want to do in political journalism is try to push other political, like, influencers towards better ideas, better policies, so on. So Twitter is somewhere I don't really read Twitter myself. I tweet things out because I feel like it's Absolutely. important to be say, there. I yeah. don't
1: mean to put you in the spot. No, no, you no. I think, I think this is I
0: am defend. not an all And I think this trying is actually to sort of good. Get to, yeah, yeah.
1: Look, if polarization is a problem and we know that Twitter is polarizing, there's a whole body of scholarship yes. on, I was it, CM computer mediated communication uh-huh. that we just know that it polarizes people to yep. tweet. Or to pull, or to to post comments, like yeah. it's something about the nature of the kind of communication. Yeah,
0: and I want to say I really, I actually very much appreciate this. Like this is why I wanted to to do this with you because I we've talked before, and I think you'll push me in good ways and, and push the book in good ways. On Twitter, I ultimately, after being off Twitter for a long time, made the decision to go back because it felt like I was having trouble tracking what it was that everybody was talking about if I wasn't there. And that may just be the wrong decision. Okay,
1: but so my my Mm -hmm. problem is that everybody. Yes. It is a very, very, very small slice of people. Now, they're powerful people. I Mm -hmm. don't, you know, they're people with very strong views. To the president. But I take seriously your sense of moral agony and civic concern. So I just, Pushing you into the Look, I, I how think how can
0: that I think on Twitter, I actually have a slightly different view of this part of it, but uh, I want to actually also go to on the box piece of it because I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about. But on Twitter, I don't feel for myself that being on Twitter is polarizing. I think Twitter is polarizing. But I think in part because I hold that view, what I'm trying to do there is understand a lot of the currents of opinion and where they're coming from. It's very hard to figure out, in some ways, for instance, what is the Bernie Sanders campaign doing if you're not watching what their supporters are saying? And Twitter does, happen, does be a leading indicator. So I think there, I would say, and I think there's something that uh, the difference between reporters who use Twitter well and poorly is that there's a difference between using Twitter to report and just using it to opine. And I go through stages on this. There are periods where I don't read it at all. There are periods where I use it like a blog where I kind of Uh, I don't tend to follow Twitter through timelines. What I have is individual people, and I will go read through their feeds individually, almost like it's a blog. But I don't feel like my work is better or less polarizing if I'm not on it. But I think that—and I've said this many times before—I think the problem is, look, the media is somewhat self-referential. And there's no doubt that oftentimes, for worse, we're in a conversation with ourselves— You don't want to be too much in that, and it's also hard to fall too much out of that and just continue doing the job well. Now, maybe that's because media just does the job poorly. I think it would actually be totally reasonable to say, and it's something that I kind of probably feel 30% of the time, that our whole definition of how news is defined is so wrong. And I do make the point in the book that Twitter is the assignment editor for a lot of it that maybe we're just making it worse. To be honest, I feel like I'm railing me because you might just be right. It might just be that I should be off of Twitter and my career incentives would be on it and I haven't quite had the courage to just say, screw it.
1: I, I think I would draw a distinction between you may use it as a place you would report from. Yeah. There's, I can understand reporting yeah. from Twitter, but there is a considerable social science literature that Twitter, the mm-hmm. existence of Twitter, polarizes people and, who use it, who and use I believe it, it. it politically. And I, so I I guess I just think yeah. that's that's a concern. And I don't. I mean, I'm not waiting for a new movement of abstemiousness. I do think we're on the cusp, honestly. I will say of a religious revival, but that's a separate let question. Me, let me take the Vox piece of the uh, question because yeah, that—that that I think is
0: Twitter. In some ways, I think is a marginal case given what I do on it. But Vox is harder. So I'm one of the co-founders of Vox, and you know, set it up, and I'm tremendously proud of most of the work that we do. But when we launched, it was particularly at that moment, it was the moment when Facebook had opened the floodgates of traffic, which closed a couple of years later. There was actually a pretty brief moment like this in the media where all of a sudden Facebook was, for a lot of publishers, 40%, 60% of traffic. Now it's much, much lower. And we were a new organization that needed to get audience. It isn't the case that our business or anybody's business purely relies on clicks. That's a misperception. You actually, it's really important what your reputation is. To think about the simplest way to think about advertising as a business is it is a is like it is scale times prestige. Like scale time if your scale is very high, but your prestige is really low, your rates are going to be really bad. If your prestige is really high, but your scale is very low, there's not enough people reading it, you need some balance. So it isn't that it only moves you towards populism, but it does move you somewhat towards populism. And in particular, headlines on social media in order to stand out in that attentional space get cranked up to 11. And we have gone back and forth. And I think we're in a pretty good place on it now. But there are definitely periods when I was EIC that I think I let that get too hot. And I go back and forth on whether this could have worked. I tried in the early years of Vox, I tried a number of times to hire conservative writers. And because we had a reputation as a liberal outlet, because we were started by people who are like me, who are understood to be liberal, that did not work out. And so Vox developed very rapidly a more left reputation than I had intended for it to have, not because I don't want us to, say, be pro-universal healthcare. I do, and I believe in journalism that has conclusions and has values, and I'm not somebody who thinks objective journalism is either possible or even really the thing to strive for. But I do think that I let us get pushed a little bit too much by social incentives and that that was one of my failures as an editor in chief. Now, the flip of that, the stuff that I think we do really well that I think sometimes doesn't get seen in this conversation is that one reason we built Vox to have a lot of much less politicized dimensions and to be in a lot of areas that have very different incentives is in part to speak to other kinds of people. So, I mean, I think in our political coverage, the thing we do really well is we focus on policy, which I think helps anchor us away from just some of the trends. But then sometimes when we're just responding to something, I think we can get caught up in caught up in bad mobs. But I think if you look at things like Explained on Netflix or our YouTube channel or some of the work we do in our health and science teams, that we've really been like a lot of our energy, including those early years, went into building, not just building audience, but creating kinds of service journalism that were doing things that were a lot less politicized. It was one reason coming from Wonkblog that I didn't just want to create a political news outlet, because I, I at least sensed some of this, even if I didn't have, I think, as good an understanding of it as I do now, and so I didn't have as good an understanding of the platforms as I do now. And so wanted to create something that could speak more broadly to people's different interests, and then you could kind of pull people from from thing to thing. So I don't know. It is a regret of mine that Vox is as polarized an outlet as it is, not not even so much in its coverage, but in the way it is seen. And at the same time, um, when I look back, it's not that I can't say here six articles I wish we hadn't published. But in general, it has been a very polarizing time. And I don't really know how we would have covered Donald Trump in a way that would not have polarized Republicans who felt that we were overly critical of Donald Trump and still did it honestly. That's the part where it gets really hard for me and where I find it wouldn't be agonizing if I thought the answer were easy. If I thought the answer were easy, I would just do that. But it's not easy because being honest right now often means saying the president is lying or he's being bigoted or whatever. And in that world, in some ways, I mean, when you see the New York Times and the Washington Post get as polarized by the president as they have, right, where they're constantly called fake news and Post comes out and says, you know, democracy dies in darkness and this like subtweety um, tagline. Like you see everybody being moved around uh, in the system a bit. You know, Vox was smaller and I think maybe got pushed in some cases further. But it's a very tough problem to solve. Yeah,
1: I, I entirely agree. It's a tough problem to solve. I don't think, I, I, you know, when I give public lectures and people ask me, what should we be doing? And I say, well, here's the first thing. Close your eyes and make a list of all the things you did today Mm -hmm. that made our political culture worse, because we're all actually contributing to the worsening of our political. I actually don't think there's anyone who doesn't have regrets about ways. Mm -hmm. And I mean, actually anyone. I mean, people in their daily lives are swept away in this in in ways that I think there's a lot of atonement kind of required the book lays out chapter by chapter different institutions or ecosystems where good scholarship has shown us change over time and where you are alerting us to what's going on and so you have the you know very interesting media chapter which in many ways parallels the chronology you're laying out in uh, the increased partisanship chapter, we're going to kind of go from really kind of not having parties that are distinct to parties that are very well sorted in the argument that is a familiar one that, of course, sort of kind of 1945 to 1972 is the exception, right? In the Marcus Mm -hmm. Pryor work as well, which is about the age of the network television news. And it has this leavening effect on our political culture. Also, it's the age of low income inequality. It's a very distinctive period in American history of, of incredible prosperity, and um, also of huge advances in civil rights and in in political equality. But where in your epilogue you offer up some suggested solutions with the caveat that you haven't written a book that is offering solutions, um, but making some suggestions, maybe I missed it, but I didn't really quite see what the media solutions were. If you weren't you with your past and you Mm -hmm. were just a new person on the scene and you had no commitments— What would you want to invent? How would it
0: work? I actually think about this a lot. Um, So let me maybe come back to the solutions for the rest of it. I'll just say very quickly, the reason I don't primarily do media solutions at the end is that I actually think the biggest problem for the media, putting aside social media, is that the reality of the system is as polarized as it is. I think that it is a lot easier to cover things in a way that everybody can see themselves a little bit represented in the coverage and feel fairly treated, If what you're covering, you can honestly cover in a more balanced way. I think in a way that I cover the Merrick Garland affair in the book in a very balanced way, and then I think I'm very sensitive to what Mitch McConnell's incentives actually are. But there's no doubt that the reality of that, once he started doing that, to cover that clearly was just going to be polarizing. I mean, it was more polarizing than if he had held hearings and like they had, you know. So one reason I do it is because I do think the media is a little bit subsidiary behind a bunch of other things. But to what you're saying, if I were starting a media organization today... When my co-founders and I started Vox, the thing that was in our head was in the Obama era, when you were covering things like Obamacare and the financial crisis, you were covering these fast-moving, very complex, but also very important stories, and it was very hard for people to get the context to understand what was happening when they came in midstream. So, so much of Vox is about explanatory journalism, which is fundamentally about context. Right now, if I were trying to solve a problem in the media, I think the definition and the mechanisms of what gets defined as newsworthy are broken. I think that what the news media's eye of Sauron settles on two times out of five is deeply the wrong thing. I use in the book the example of the Covington Catholic High School standoff with a Native American elder. This is a protest on the National Mall. Nobody got hurt except maybe their feelings got hurt. Like in The whole media is arguing about it for a week. There are lawsuits. Donald Trump gets involved. It's crazy. And it's all because people just got so angry over something that objectively just wasn't that important. It just keyed into a bunch of deep political identities. So if I were starting something today, I think that I would start something that had just because I think there's too much hurting around whatever everybody is talking about. I would start something where the promise of it is the one thing we will not cover every single day is whatever everybody else is covering every single day. That it will just be an organization that it is not that it never covers a topic that is news related, but it never covers the main topic in the news or the main topics in the news. It is never – Vox had initially these two taglines, still does in in many ways, which were um, explain the news and what's most important is often not what's new. And the idea of that was you could actually synthesize those into something's going on the news, but you can use it to sort of like redirect its own spotlight on the more important thing under it or around it. Um, So, you know, you're having this fight today in Congress, and what it really tells you about is how powerful the filibuster is. But that was truer in the Obama era than in the Trump era, in my view. And now, oftentimes, there's a, a, to me, a much sharper distinction and, and contradiction between what is in the news and what is most important. So I think if I were doing it today, it's not what everybody in the news could do or it wouldn't be the news. But if I were just starting something new on the scene today, it would be something that was itself completely disconnected from the news cycle, because I think the news cycle is a source of a lot of problems.
1: Well, I think you should do that. But I also <laughs> think you've just made a very effective argument against Twitter. Since the Covington kids, yes, there was a Twitter assignment, right? That That's where that story got magnified and amplified. and became, I am an- I
0: anti-Twitter. <laughs> I'm just on it. <laughs> I'm not trying to make
1: you... I have a very strong memory of years ago, walking down the street with a colleague of mine. I was teaching at BU and we were having a conversation and someone come the other direction was on a cell phone. And it was like one of those big, not even like a clamshell, but like a yeah. big cell phone and glared at us because in while passing us, it was hard for him to continue his own conversation on the phone. And my colleague, Bruce Shulman, said, let's just put this in our date book. Like This is the day when people on telephones walking down the street thought that their conversation was more important than other people (laughs) who were walking down the street talking to each other. And I I remember having that strong feeling, but I don't know what the date was. The first time I read in the New York Times a story that was about a Twitter post. And I just just remember thinking, I'm sorry. How is this a story? I mean, there's a novelty piece of that. There's you could report on the phenomenon, after, but that the story is being driven by. I'm, right, I'm going to leave
0: that. Can I say one important okay. thing about this? Because we're talking on the day. The thing that I don't know how to rate one of my views in the book is that. Something that has happened is that we've been moving, I think a simple way to put it is we keep moving onto mediums that force us to be even more polarizing versions of ourselves. And the way I would almost put it is we move from, you know, what the news media looks like, let's call it in the 80s and 90s, into the cable news era, which dominates, you know, starting in the late 90s into the aughts and still is very dominant. But cable news gets its own, like, version of cable news and Twitter. And on the one hand, it feels like you have to watch this stuff because it's where everybody is making their statements. Today, Lamar Alexander, the the day we're talking on, had a 15-tweet explanation of why he's not voting for witnesses in impeachment. So I had to read him on Twitter. And yet that is— Like, it's a simplified version of it. It lacks nuance he might have had in another place. It's like much less careful in the speech. I think his argument is bad no matter what it would be. I think it's a bad argument. But nevertheless, I also have this kind of feeling that we just keep moving onto worse and worse platforms. I've been reading, and you probably know much more about this. I've been reading a lot of criticisms of the television age, Mm -hmm. Uh, stuff like Neil Postman. Mm -hmm. There's a great book called uh, Four Arguments Against the Existence of Television that is worth picking up. Mm -hmm. It's still in print. And one of the things that has just been striking to me is they were actually right. Mm -hmm. I think people today are like, well, Mm -hmm. people when television came, they were right about what it would do. We're just living in it. And it turns out that it's not the only thing that happened and society didn't literally collapse. So we're like, oh, all these Luddites from before. But no, they were right about how it would change us. They couldn't even have imagined Donald Trump and Twitter. It's so much worse than what Neil Postman said would happen. And so there's this funny way in which. Like, I don't know what you do when you're caught between a belief that on the one hand, it's all ha- it's like it is the fact that a lot of politics is happening in this platform and you think it's a bad like you think it's moved to a bad platform. Like, how do you how can you be in a system and outside of it? Like, how do you yeah. maintain that independence? No, I think, from the age it's, you live I think in? it's
1: really tricky. And I will say a, a strong argument against my let's go back to an age before this stuff, sensibility, which is not an intellectual argument, but is just a, a misplaced nostalgia, is you know over the last few weeks listening to the impeachment hearings, which I listened to, I didn't watch, right? I listened to them while I was working, and people complain about them, and you had to sit, they, the senators had to sit there, and they couldn't say anything, and they couldn't have their phones out, and and I remember thinking this is exactly the pace that I like, like listening, to like tw- I could listen to twelve hours of debate about something. I mean, it, but it, but on the other hand, it actually didn't really get to the heart of the matter, at some level, right? Like it, it was, it was a lot of posturing was 12 hours of posturing every day. But I still liked the pace of it so much better that I could be. I would be very willing to. And you probably would, I'm sure, too, be willing to listen to Lamar Alexander give that explanation mm-hmm. in a 45 minute speech. Who's going to air that? It's not going to mean he could post it, but no one's going to really watch it. If you try to watch it, you're going to first be directed to the five minute summation of it. Right. Like there's, you can't even get to the impeachment hearings anymore. You only get shunted over to The Washington Post impeachment in five minutes.
0: You know what else I find that with is the debates, Democratic debates. So I had the experience of the last three debates just sort of randomly have fallen on nights when I'm on parenting duty with my son. And this is about to explain the ways in which I'm a bad parent, but I had to cover them, but I didn't have to write on them immediately. I could wait till he went to sleep. And so what I would do is I'd have my AirPods in and I'd be taking care of him and, and hearing the debate. And that was a big difference from the way I would normally do it, which is like I'm on Slack with my colleagues and sort of keeping an eye on Twitter. And I experienced the debate so differently, not having this real-time social social group feedback on it, right? Instead of hearing everybody say, that answer was terrible and you know so-and-so looks bad and most of the time I kinda come away from the debates now and I've started doing this normally to listen to them. I was like, everybody makes a lot of good points, um, except when Joe Biden's having a really bad night. <laughs> and it's a very different it's a very different experience. You process it differently. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I I um I I'm gonna get back to your book. My next question is taking us back to your book, but I remember watching the first of these, the crazy 17 person one. And I don't I, I don't read the I s like once in a while I'll check on like the New York Times live feed, watch like what Maggie Haberman's saying or something. Uh But normally I don't. And um, I remember thinking, well, there are people of good intention hoping to steer the country in a new direction. Like that was my basic thing. But that's kind of, you know, but then the next day I watched the five minute summation and everyone looks like an ass. Yes. Okay. What I wanted to turn to was um, the work that you cite in the field of social psychology, which in some ways I struggled with understanding which of the many forces that you investigate and show us in some detail was for you the driver of all the other forces. And I came to suspect that it is our psychology, partly because you say at one point, every dimension in our lives, ideology, religiosity, geography, race, and so on, carries a psychological signal. And you cite some really interesting work that I, you know, is utterly, it's like candy, some of this work, right? Like the um, the Yale Law School uh, Dan Kahan. Yeah. Uh, I just find that stuff fascinating. Really? That's what ha- I love this stuff. It's like when people first read Stanley Milgram's work or something or the marshmallow experiment with toddlers or it gets it seems it has a kind of just so quality, which makes me a little suspicious of it. But I would suggest that you you're not that suspicious of it, whereas um, I would say social psychology is. And I'm not the one to say this is, is in crisis as a, as a discipline, the sort of replication, falsification crisis. Uh, people are deeply suspicious of this scholarship. So am I right that it's psychology that you think is the driver of our mega-identity politics? Or or have I got that wrong? And what for you is ultimately compelling about this scholarship?
0: Yeah, so oh, there's a lot in there. So one thing is worth saying is that I cut a lot of it from the book, actually. And I had a lot more in a Republicans and Democrats chapter initially because I think it is true, but I don't think the studies are good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So to your point about the social Mm -hmm. science replication crisis, I agree. And in particular, a lot of the more granular social psychology findings or political psychology findings in particular about, oh, liberals have higher needs for cognition and authoritarian scales and all these different things people get into. One, I think that for um, in a way that is quite bad. The actual just language of the discipline is quite biased. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the authoritarian scale, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, among other things. But also, to your point, those studies don't replicate well. I do think that there is psychology embedded deep in people's politics. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I think these open and closed dimensions seem to show up a lot. They show up in international studies. They show up in historical studies and they like they they seem to they seem to work and they seem to have been proven out a lot but ultimately i only have um what, in what I think of as a true political psychology stuff, like like literally how people understand their own psyches. I only have a couple pages on it because I sort of want to gesture at it. I think they're getting at something very important. I don't think the field is mature enough to say mm-hmm. it with a deep level specificity. Mm-hmm. The bigger stuff that you're talking about around motivated reasoning or identity protective cognition, that stuff I'm a lot less skeptical of. To be just truthful, I look all around me and it's all I see. And so the mixture of watching people do it in real time and then seeing it replicated in studies over and over, because stuff like motivated reasoning really has replicated. There's things we don't know. And I wouldn't use the the Milgram experiment. Mm-hmm. I think is under fire. The marshmallow experiment is under some fire. <laughs> um, The robber's cave experiment is under a fair amount of fire. But I don't think that the studies I use in there, which is primarily like Tajfels, people sort into groups pretty easily and quickly. Um, and then I do a fair amount on motivated reasoning and the way people, uh, cognition is often used to to affirm people's biases. I'm not super worried that that stuff is gonna go away or be overturned. I mean, we see it all around. One thing I do try to do in the book, uh, it's been interesting to me how much people fasten on the studies of the book, because obviously that is a huge part of it. And you can really tell it makes up the foundation of how I think about things. But I really do try to braid it with political reporting. And one of the ways that I actually work is that I am doing political reporting first and then trying to work backwards from what I'm actually seeing to see if there's – research that tells me it is happening at scale or it's been happening over time and, and and so on. And so in a lot of these situations, what is happening either in real time or, or, or quietly is that I'm trying to explain something I've seen in Congress or, for instance, social identity. I spend a lot of time talking about sports there because, I mean, look at like as somebody who's a sort of outsider to sports fandom, although a lot of people have been very sort of like can't tell you how many people like you played nose tackle in high school, <laughs> um, uh, which says bad things about my perceived level of athleticism. But I think it's clearly true that people sort into groups easily and develop outgroup hostility easily. And I'm just trying to develop a slightly more rigorous understanding of how it works. Um, the very new stuff I worry about, but I don't really worry that much about that. Do you think I should? Do you do you disagree with some of that? Uh, yeah, group I do. I stuff? mean, I don't, me. I
1: don't think any of these people are, you know, willfully doing bad work or something, but I, I have a f- pretty significant degree of skepticism about a lot of it. And I also, as a historian, find it unpersuasive of our current dilemma, mm-hmm. because if this is a, a deep human psychology, this, this form of cognition, these kinds of alliance building, um, then you would see it across time and it would be manifest more obviously. And I And I don't see that to be the case. So I find it to have a kind of just so quality, but I also think it's part of something else that I wanted to raise. Before we go
0: on, can you tell me what you mean by that? Because one of the things when I look back at human history, I just do see a lot of group conflict. I mean, it changes; the lines change, but the tendency to sort into an us versus them. I think it's very interesting how the us and the them shift, but it seems to me that the us and them is super constant.
1: So I think that the nature of human societies has shifted significantly, and all of our political philosophy most of which comes from 17th century England, relies on a construction of the public self that is the man who is the head of household. And he, in that Lockean sense, consents to be governed and enters the public sphere. And the private sphere are his women and children and dependents and servants and slaves. And they don't have a public identity. So the allying in the group formation is among men who are heads of household And we live in a society where we are all enfranchised. I mean, children are minors, but you can vote at 18. I mean, we have a very different social arrangement. So the kinds of reconfiguring of what those attachments and loyalties would be are very different when you discredit the idea that all dependents are represented by the only independent member of the household. I actually just think that that literature doesn't account for the lived political equality of our era so i think it may you might look to it and say well that really describes the war of the roses but it doesn't describe anything to me what does the war of the roses describe like that's like 10 guys i don't like it's that it's the it's that failure to think about groups over time but i don't don't want to get distracted by that but i oh but it's interesting (laughs) (laughs) but i did want to ask you because i get this vibe reading your book that you're like like, you print your stuff out from JSTOR and you're super excited about it, like this new body of literature you get to dive into and figure out what its rules are and who the big players are and what the findings are, what's interesting, what's worth sharing with your readers. And I totally love that. Like, I, I that is a joy that I experienced. And it was fun watching you just, like, just be knocked out by this stuff. But it seemed to me, in some big structural way in the book, there's a quite noticeable absence of villains. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that as the explanation you came to as a choice, as a narrative choice. Why no villains?
0: So one thing I'll say is that one piece of feedback I get is people on the liberal side feel the book has no villains and people not every i think a lot of people who are conservative held the book is more fair than they would have thought i was going to be to them but if you look on my amazon reviews there are also people being like liberal hack who just you know calls republicans bad um which was not how i felt i was writing the book but i want to understand people in general as i do understand people in general as following incentives i am and this is very deep in me it's temperamental it goes way beyond this book I don't trust people's stories of why they do things almost at all. I am not a huge believer in individual agency, not in a narrow sense, obviously, if Donald Trump had not run for president, American history would have been different. If Barack Obama had not given a speech in 2004, American political history would have been different. But I don't think if Mitch McConnell was beaten in Kentucky a couple of years ago, that the current Republican leadership would be dramatically different. I don't think if Newt Gingrich hadn't appeared. I'm very skeptical of like the Newt Gingrichification of polarization literature, where it's all like this one guy came from Georgia and he came up with all these new, maybe it would have happened a couple of years after him, but people were playing out the incentives of the system in a reasonably clear way that I think was going to happen one way or the other. So there are obviously people I think of as villains in the sense that Even as they are following their incentives, their values are values I find toxic. They are racist or they are willing to abandon the poor to no health insurance and so on. So there are people whose values I find quite grotesque. Um, Even so, what I wanted to try to do here, the kind of book I'm writing to me and I say this at the beginning is... I am trying to tell you how a machine works. I'm just trying to tell you what happens to almost everybody in it. So then you can you can run the model your own way. Like in a, in a weird book, uh, I don't think of the book, I'm sure it is, but I don't think of the book really as an argument I'm making that I'm trying to persuade you of. I sort of think of it as I've been working for many, many years on a model of how to understand politics, a model that I filter new information through, and I'm giving you that model. And that model, again, there are people in it who where they are, what they're trying to do, makes them villainous to me. But I trust you to have your own values. What I want to tell you is how the thing is working.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I wonder, though, if we could expand the notion of villainy, uh, not just to individuals, which is actually not what I had in mind. Like I wasn't thinking, well, let's hear the following five people are responsible. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Kevin Phillips and the Southern, <laughs> southern, southern Strategy Plan. Um as much as maybe institutions, you know, a person could write this book and blame the entire thing on higher education, for instance. I mean, that would be a very polemical book, but I think those that book probably exists. I just haven't seen it. But uh, there would be ways to you could you could write the entire book, and blame it on House leadership for changing the House rules. I think we to get, circle back to what we talked, talked about before, elite political figures are the drivers of polarization. They're driving ordinary people seems to be the the best. Proven mm-hmm. argument about the relationship between the the, the masses and, and and political elites. So you could pick a particular body of elites that would be nonpartisan, but just would be structurally the same group of people.
0: I I would say to the extent I think the book does have institutional villains, which I think it does a little bit more than that. Is I think the book takes the structure of our government as somewhat villainist, or at least like not well suited for the age that we're actually in. The other thing that I find tricky is that I wanted to call some players in this and some institutions villains, and I had a lot of trouble figuring out a chain of causality. So I'll give you an example here. I got really caught, and I still am not quite out of this question of, is Fox News the problem or is Fox News a symptom of a problem in this way? It is hard for me to tell, and I've really tried to figure it out. And I think the answer is it's both, but it's unsatisfying to say that for the book. Fox News obviously is driving, and I would say in many ways deranging the Republican Party. But when I look at moments when I think Fox News wanted to drive things in a different direction. So in 2013, there's clearly an effort um, alongside a lot of other elite Republicans. Fox News wants to embrace the idea that immigration reform would be good for the Republican Party. And so Sean Hannity has Marco Rubio on his program to brag about the immigration bill that he's negotiating with the Democrats, and Sean Hannity endorses it. And there's a huge backlash among Hannity's people. Or Donald Trump goes into that first Republican primary debate, and Fox News, which had been inflating the Trump public because, hey, it's fun. It's not going to go anywhere. They clearly decide this has gone too far and we're going to try to take him out. So Megyn Kelly and Chris Wallace and Brett Baer, they really lay into him things he said before about how Canadian healthcare is great and, you know, heterodoxies from conservatism and all the terrible things he said about women. And he gets into a fight with Fox News and wins. Fox News basically submits to him. And a year later, Megyn Kelly's gone. And now you have Tucker Carlson channeling Trump news at the on the 8 p.m. hour. And so... I think one of the reasons I had a little bit of trouble finding a clear villain, and this goes a bit to psychological stuff I couldn't prove but I felt was there is that I do think that all of these institutions are in a relationship with their audience. Why is it that Newt Gingrich and Mitch McConnell survive and thrive in the Republican Party, whereas Dem- House Democrats are run by the same leadership team they had in 06? There is something different happening in the relationship between the bases and the party institutions. And I do try to explain in some ways why the Democratic um, structure is different than the Republican structure. But I think that one of the things that was hard for me is that it's not that I am certain that these institutional players don't have more autonomy, but that every time I tried to, like, trace it down to the place where I could prove it, I would fail. Even with Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump is one of many options Republicans had in 2016. And since then, there have been a number of Republicans who have tried to challenge him with another approach. I mean, think of a Justin Amash, a Mark Sanford, a Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, and they just lose. They just get destroyed, as did the 16 Republicans that he ran against. And so on the one hand, clearly Donald Trump as an individual is an agent in this who made decisions that really changed the structure of American politics. But clearly it also wasn't just him. He had figured out what was true about the audience. So I'm trying in some ways to trace that, but also I have trouble... I have trouble assigning the causality or even figuring out where it begins. All these things seem to be in a dynamic relationship with each other that is hard to, like, hard to figure out where, if you replaced the player or even the institution, how different of a result you would get.
1: So I can see why that pulls you away from the individual villains. And I can also see where that attracts you to explanations that are systems-based you refer to a machine whose parts you're all you're trying to identify we could think about it as a, as a system as well but it is more typical instead of taking an inventory of work in social psychology political science media studies cultural history to choose one as having an explanatory force or economic change which i don't think is a big part of the argument that you're making here i work with academics i am an academic you have to choose. It's like pick your lane is the is kind of the wrong cliche. It's like pick your part of the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> you're going to be in. Like, like, but but why do I have to choose? No, you don't have to. But I'm wondering whether there's a consequence for not ha, for not doing that. Like, it's a it's a smorgasbord. Of, it's an intellectual feast of different assessments and part of different realms of knowledge, recent research that tries to understand why we are polarized, and it's a public service to offer all that up. Um, but you still are kind of giving your reader a menu mm-hmm. and I want to know what you would order.
0: I think the, I mean, maybe this is a failure of my writing, but the book to me is a synthesis, not a menu. Um, it's not that these things all operate sort of on their own and you should choose one. It's that the thing I'm trying to build an idea of is a machine where different pieces are all working together. So it's funny because in my process, it feels, I I can 100% understand how the book comes out that way, but. I like what's running through my head is all the stuff I rejected, Mm
1: -hmm. all the
0: things and arguments and ideas that I rejected because they didn't hold true in my political reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't I didn't think the study was strong enough. The way I do my work is not actually that what I do is I um, like just go reload NBER every Monday (laughs) and just see what happened. And I am I do do a little bit of that. I don't want to totally uh, deny it, but. I work backwards from a problem and call a bunch of people and try to understand what is the best information I can get on it, and then try to like come up with some answer that seems to me to be rigorous and is likely to be right. So I don't know that in my head, I don't think these things there is an answer to this. I don't like I, I hear what you're saying about, say the political psychology chapter. is that what's driving everything? I mean, on some level, to the degree that I believe human nature has to drive politics, having some account of the way human beings act in groups is important to me. But I you, think sure, it would be very just, different. Yeah, d- please. Just jump into there to yeah. say,
1: sure, but your account could come from theology. Your account could come from philosophy. You, you know, there, there are humanistic ways of understanding. That's true. That, I'm probably that, that, more skeptical of them. That's what I find yes. baffling. Myself, as someone who's unpersuaded by social psychology in general, yeah. open to it specific, but my explanations don't come from that realm of knowledge. So the things that you set aside yes. happen to be the explanations that are to me most Oh, that's empowering. interesting. So
0: I think one thing that's, uh, and this is completely true about me, I gravitate towards explanations that operate at some scale and have some testability to them. And I think part of the reason, by the way, is actually journalism. In a funny way, I think you're, one of the things I'm hearing from you is, hey, look, I'm an academic and I see what these people are doing and it's OK. Like it's, some it's good, some it's bad, but don't take it too seriously. One of the things that for me as I do journalism is – and I see how wrong things are even at the time, right? I see how wrong situations that I've been reporting on are – the reporting on them that I read, I'm just shocked by how much I think they misunderstand the fundamentals or they didn't understand what the policy was or why people were doing what they were doing or whatever. And it makes me very skeptical of explanations that are – I worry a little bit about history when I read it. I often find it very convincing, but I know that I'm looking at people interpreting news articles that if I had been reporting at the time, I probably wouldn't have trusted. Um, but now they feel more authoritative because it's, well, the New York Times said in 1976, and obviously I do a little bit of that too myself. I don't want to toss history overboard. Philosophy I love and read actually a fair amount of, but every time I start hearing about what Aristotle said about the human, I just turn, I just completely tune out. So. I don't know. I'm looking for things that match. I feel like the version of that that I am doing is in the political reporting itself and there's a lot of political reporting in this interviews with Obama and other people in the media and senators and congressmen and staffers and then I'm trying to see is what they can I match what they are saying to bigger findings that will help me check it. Um so it's not just what sounds convincing to me or what's a fun argument to make. Um theology I'm much more skeptical than a lot of people, and I think you signaled maybe more optimism about this thesis, but that I think religion is a huge part of our story, but I don't think it played the moderating force that other people do. So some of the, I think that there is an overly uh, idyllic view that has begun to get a lot of currency, particularly on the right, that what we're going through is a society unrestrained by the disciplining norms or even organizational dimensions of Christianity. And I don't know, when I look at our history, I find Christianity very present in times of incredibly high polarization and conflict and in times of not. And so I just have trouble seeing it as as powerful Mm -hmm. and explanatory force as some of my colleagues do.
1: It makes perfect sense that we would end, again, in an epistemological (laughs) (laughs) stalemate. I think that is actually... Where you and I end, I mean, I'm sure we have plenty of political differences, but I, I think it's a pretty significant difference because I would suggest that an explanation that your preference for this kind of scholarship puts you uh, at risk of is an exposure to the inevitability of the machine. Mm-hmm. That is to say, the preference for the social sciences above all. There's not a lot of natural science in your book, right? We're not looking at biological explanations. Yeah, it's not physics. We're not looking even really at political geography. Uh, You know, we're not looking at natural world explanations, or declining resources. We just the natural sciences are not here. Mm -hmm. This is largely a book of social science, as a kind of applied journalism, I would posit. And yet, the preference for social science as an explanation of the human condition, as the one that supplants the humanistic explanation for the human condition, is itself a function of the very Society that is polarizing. So, in other words, I'm just wondering whether there isn't maybe a risk of circularity. That is to say, the measure that you use uh, to study polarization is a measure, a set of measures that are actually driving polarization that we would associate with the asymmetrical development of the university after the Second World War and the rise of the national security state. The kinds of money you could get to do certain kinds of behavioral science, rational choice, behavior science which was meant to be predictive and almost all of which turns out to have been not predictive at all. Most of the stuff that that scholarship predicted didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Not that there's not many useful um kind of snapshot dimensions to that work, but as a predictive like the the great aim of behavioral science was that it would be predictive like certain natural sciences. And it was actually the, the drive for that prediction that did things like ask the American Political Science Association Task Force in 1950 that you write about to say, you know what we really need? We know now because our models of rational choice tell us we need more polarized political parties. Did we? I mean, no, we actually we probably didn't. But quantitatively, it was interesting to do. And the, the understanding of the human condition that emerged from that field, which was about the Mankean battle between communism and capitalism, like which is actually about— the moral absolutism the the, the killer be killed the ultimate polarization which you know comes from that cold war moment this the free world and then there's the world of tyranny and when you know see historically by the 90s at the, with the with the end of the cold war that becomes domestic now we're in this domestic cold war like that, I, I think as a matter of history that's a phenomenon that i see so when you say you arrived in washington in 2005 Well, you arriving in that world where people are like, we can't fight ideological uh, end times warfare with the Russians anymore, with the Soviets. So we'll fight it with the Democrats and we'll fight it with the Republicans. That that whole mess, in fact, is deeply implicated in the social sciences.
0: Weirdly enough, I actually love that. I think that's probably, at least in some part right. Uh, The one thing I'll say about journalism when I arrived to it is that the kind of journalism I was doing um, and, and do now around social science and policy was in part a reaction to a form of journalism that I feel and continue to feel is deeply unrigorous. So I don't think it's that social sciences were dominant when I came into, in, into journalism. In fact, I think that almost there was nothing um, restraining anybody from just saying, yeah, here's what I think. And so I try to at least have some restraint. But I, you're like, as a corrective, I think that's well taken. And I think people who hopefully read the book should keep it in mind. I feel personally, like having written this book, that this is the absolute best I can do to give you the model that I think is most predictive and explanatory of politics right now. And I can also feel inside myself that I am overly bought into it, that I would never tell anybody else that it should be their only model about politics. But I think the amount of work I did to create it and the amount of rejecting things and having to decide what went where and is this convincing or is it not, the nature of that for all that I write about political psychology in the book is that I've convinced myself pretty deeply of it. and. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is that after the 2020 election, I think it's probably time for me to stop covering politics for a while, because I think I need to, like I've said, but I what I think it makes a lot of sense for me to say, and I like probably need to just learn about some other things for a while so I don't just get locked into this one thing, I think, and can come back with fresh eyes mm-hmm. at some point. I mean, who knows if I'll end up doing that. But I don't I mean, look, like I obviously think the, the, the model is good, but I think that you are probably right that. It is heavily reliant on social science. Some of that is not going to prove out to be true. And then other things that right now the book will read very much like a closed loop to people. Somebody said it has like the inevitable force. It has the inevitable logic of a nightmare, which I sort of appreciated (laughs) as a description. At some point, something fundamental that I am writing about is going to change. Either the demography is going to change so that, you know, Texas goes blue and that's going to like upend everything about the geography I write about in the book, or the media is going to change and, you know, whatever, like, or we're going to have a war that begins to reunify around an American identity as opposed to some of these political identities, to your point about communism and capitalism. And I really worry about not, I think that something was helpful for me was I came into journalism when people really had this baselined 1980s Tip O'Neill and Reagan model, and I could see that it had changed. I wasn't caught in that because like, that wasn't what was happening in my 20s. At some point, the thing that has been happening through my 20s and my 30s, which is this super polarized era, something is going to change that. Somebody's going to change it. Um, it's going to shift. And I worry a lot as a journalist about not being able to see it, being so caught into my explanation, having had so many discussions where I defend it and argue it and so on, that I just become one of these people who's going to be spinning out the same argument long after it has um, stopped being usable. I think that is not yet. So people should buy the book currently. <laughs> but 10 years from now, I'm not confident the book will be right.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think that your understanding of the best of journalism is? Is it explaining how we got here, or is it predicting where we're going?
0: Ooh, I mean, journalism does a lot of different things. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's either of them. I mean, obviously, the most important journalism is the journalism that covers new facts around the world. Mm-hmm. And then the journalism that I really appreciate is the journalism that helps me understand how those fit into the messy complexities of the world. I really admire journalism, and often the kind I read is not done with as much social science, but is done with a lot more on the ground reporting of just messy human reality. The way that clean theories of how things should work actually play out, that's the kind of journalism I really appreciate. The stuff in politics that I dislike is the, I don't know, like the what I like to call like Green Lantern theory stuff, where it's always about just some messaging move or a speech, you know, that it like pretends politics is a TV show. And if you just write a dramatic enough ending, all the problems will solve. The journalism I really appreciate is when people are out among voters or even out among politicians, and they can help me understand why people are making decisions or doing things that feel off to me, right? I mean, something that just is true for all the ways in which social science might impose a rationality on it, I think that a lot of us see and feel the sense that people are making decisions in politics that even the people making them don't really like at the end of the day. And so journalism that helps me understand how we become our political selves as opposed to our more complex selves is really helpful. I mean, and particularly for politicians, right? There is not a politician I have ever met who does not seem reasonable and rational and judicious when you're talking to them one-on-one, sitting in a room without cameras, talking through things. And then you watch your behavior in Congress as things collapse down to that binary, and it can be totally ludicrous. And a lot of my book is trying to understand what is happening in the middle of that process, but there's a lot of journalism that does it from different directions. Um, even just today, Tim Alberto was doing a great, if, actually in this case, a Twitter series, I'm very sorry, uh, but about how he spent a lot of time with the retiring Republicans. And the view people have that they feel free to criticize Donald Trump is just not true. They're thinking about their communities, what job they'll take next. They don't want people threatening their families. And so just the intuitive sense a lot of people have is like, oh, you're retiring. You're free to do whatever you want. It's just not how it feels on the ground to them. So I really appreciate journalism that helps me understand the complexities of reality as opposed to journalism that tells me that if people were just doing it right, we wouldn't have all these problems.
1: One theory I have about the changes in journalism as a business and its changing business model, which has to do with your argument about the nationalizing of all our political issues and our political coverage being predominantly national, which is in part a consequence of polarization and also a driver, but it's also a consequence of the crisis of local news reporting and and, and news bureaus at the local level. One theory I have is that that kind of reporting Going out and talking to people and explaining how they feel to other people, which is done qu- quantitatively less now than it was, say, twenty years ago, because people are reporting from Twitter or they don't have the budgets to do much more than read the latest Pew poll. And this is not—they don't have enough words. They don't—they have a deadline that's too fast. There's—it's really short-staffed. This is not to blame journalists for the fact that this work isn't being done, but that that work, that kind of gumshoe. You know, rubber to the ground work of going around and talking to people at meetings and bars and PTA meetings is actually what makes a democracy work. It's actually those conversations, is the hours spent talking to people. It's not just the reporting that as a story in the paper later on in the week. It's actually the 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 idle chit chat, (laughs) Um, and that that kind of you can hear this kind of great sucking sound as that gets kind of sucked out of this now kind of vacuum packed bag of Americans. Does that seem plausible to you?
0: Yes and no. I mean, I I feel that one both ways, which is that a lot of that work is bad. Not that the idle chit-chat isn't good for people, but a lot of that work where you're doing kind of you're dropping into a place and it's like this community in Iowa. And here's what I found out at the diner. It just turns out that what well, you found out the diner wasn't representative. And so on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic to, well, you want to use the polls, which show you in a coarse way and in a way that if you like zoomed into it would have some inaccuracies to it, but in a coarse way, the, the general direction people are in. And on the other hand, I am sympathetic to it because you somehow have to figure out a way to do both. And I'm certainly very sympathetic to the idea that we are... We are losing something deep in the complexities of how people relate to politics. The more time in particular journalists spend among other journalists and just listening to political elites and being in the super sorted world of Twitter or even of cable news, because most people are just not sorted that way. They don't think about politics that way. The endless, the endless lesson of doing actual reporting with voters, of which I've done a lot, is that people are not ideologically intense in the way that political elites are and people who are democrats have opinions you wouldn't expect democrats to have and people who are republicans have opinions you wouldn't expect republicans to have and is the and there's something i argue in the book it is the political system that sorts them into having to make these binary choices that often don't really represent them mm-hmm. and in some ways i think that's something that was very powerful for donald trump he was a lot like a voter in that way i mean just him himself the guy doesn't really like Democrats, doesn't like the way the country's changing, doesn't care about Medicare, thinks it's fine, thinks Medicaid's fine, kind of likes Planned Parenthood. He just had a very different assortment intuitively. And a lot of people looked at him and said, yeah, like that kind of more matches mine than Paul Ryan, who is sorted the way Washington is sorted, but not the way the Republican Party and, and base is sorted. So on the one hand, I think you want that reporting. On the other hand, the question is always, and this actually, I think, goes a little bit to your question about, and not question, but your, your good point about who is enfranchised and who is disenfranchised, not just in in who can vote, but even just in the political conversation, there is a tendency to do that reporting and fit it to the narratives people already believe. And it's very then hard for them, you know, after 2016, everybody pays all the attention to the white guys in Wisconsin. And maybe in 2020, what's really going to flip the election is Hispanics in Arizona. Or it's not even going to be any demographic group in particular, just be a different collection. And so I think that reporting is really important and also very hard to do in a People want it to be predictive when what it really is is a kind of storytelling.
1: Yeah. And just to clarify, I didn't mean the kind of reporting where the reporter from The New York Times drops into Iowa for the weekend. I actually mean the Iowa local news mm-hmm. person who's just. Oh, I agree their with that neighborhood. Then, yes. Like that, that I think that is constitutive of a civic culture. Yes. And we don't have that
0: person. And, and I, I having
1: that New York Times person in is not only not constitutive of a civic culture, but I think it's it's. Part of a decay, right? Yeah. Those conversations actually decay a sense of trust. Because, like, who are you? I mean, who do you? You're really going to get us here in a weekend? Like, it's annoying. I, got,
0: I think that's very. Fair. I would be
1: incredibly annoying, and 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 rightly so. So, I I, I, I kind of sort of meant a, a slightly a slightly different crisis there. Um, I think really hearing your political agony, and we give too much attention to national politics, but also yourself being in a position of devoting all your attention to national politics seems to me to be, you know, more than a surface problem um, here. It's a, it's a deep contradiction It's in a me. deep contradiction. And um, I noticed that political columnists who are a certain kind of person, there's just been an incredible embrace of the book among a certain kind of political columnist that, you know, whose work I see all the time. That is essentially kind of a, a replication of, the media culture that you're describing. So I'm very sympathetic to your, I think, quite heartfelt statements about how it's hard to do anything that does not per- perceive to be polarizing in a polarized world or to do anything that maybe is not somehow inadvertently polarizing in a polarized world. But I was wondering if you could just tell me uh, an experience you've had with the talking to people about the book that has given you hope that you can break out of that, that people break out of that. There are cracks in the windshield.
0: One, I I just do want to say that one place where I think I'm a little less fractured, I feel very fractured on the media questions. That's much closer to my heart. In terms of macro politics, I do always want to say that I am not somebody who thinks polarization itself has to be the problem. I'm trying to push people towards thinking about changing systems as opposed to changing people. I don't think we're going to reverse polarization, so I think we can make the system more democratic and, mm-hmm. you know, so that is like a I am glad that world of columnists is embracing that uh, set of ideas because I think they're important ideas and I think they need to move up the the political party ladder. Trying to move people in a better direction isn't a thing that I feel conflicted about. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good part of my job. In terms of um, feedback I've gotten in the book, I'm only on day four of the tour. So I actually have gotten not that much feedback on the book except for a couple columns and reviews. Um, people haven't really read it yet. But nevertheless, the main thing that I like about touring and talking to people is you just recognize like the deep unsortedness of even the people who seem very sorted. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're coming to my book talk, you are probably at a very high level. If you're listening to this show, you're at a very high level of political information. And compared to most people, you're probably super sorted. And even so, people are so much more open and curious and complex, and their opinions are held in such of a 60-40 way as opposed to hundred zero 0 way. And I just like that. I like that mm-hmm. constant reminder um, mm-hmm. that things don't have to be this way. Then the other thing I would just say is like both conversations like this and I've had some really wonderful pushback on the book from even political scientists, some of the dreaded mm-hmm. social scientists, mm-hmm. you know, making an argument that. well, Some with,
1: of my best friends some are of your quantitative best friends, social scientists. while well,
0: some of the arguments in the book might be right about sorting. Mm-hmm. The book can't explain exactly why did we go from Protestant-Catholic being a dividing line to Protestants and Catholics, yeah. at least white Protestants and Catholics, being on the same side of the line in a kind of secular versus religious political? And so that way in which I think there's some push to make sure um, that I do not get trapped into an inevitability thesis, mm-hmm. the way things are is not the only way they can be. That's a, I find that to be a very helpful thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also if you accept that it's not your obligation to be a prognosticator. It's not always the best of journalism to do that kind of prophecy making. It's certainly not the best of academic scholarship. I think in many instances that the work the work is to listen to what people believe and to help people understand what they believe and why they believe it. So uh, thanks so much for joining us here on The Ezra Klein Show. Ezra, this is Jill LaPorte.
0: Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I'm really grateful.